The following lecture was delivered at the 7th Annual National Jewish Retreat, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Mrs. Rachel Holtzkenner is the co-director of Chabad of Las Olas here in Fort Lauderdale. She holds a Master of Science degree in Brain Research Education and a popular lecturer on the topics of Kabbalah and feminism. She will now present a lecture entitled Emotional Healing and Self-Actualization. When I was about 10 or 11 years old, I remember going on a trip with my family. And I was sitting in the car with my six siblings. And I was thinking to myself, okay, we're seven kids and we're all going to have children, God willing, one day. And, you know, I think seven times seven, let's say, 49 grandchildren. And what are the chances that all those grandchildren are going to be healthy and normal and everything is going to be okay with them? Probably there's a good chance that something will go wrong. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, just feeling so vulnerable. There's so many things that could go wrong. And it could be me. I could be the one that has something go majorly wrong in my life. And I remember driving and I was expressed that to my father. I said, you know, what if something happens to one of us or one of our kids? Chances are that maybe something, there is a good chance that something will go wrong. And he said to me, well, I guess if Hashem gives you some, a challenge, that will also give you the strength to deal with it. So that was, that, that gave me a lot of resolution. Now, fast forward uh, about eight years. When I was 20 years old, I was in a car accident. And I was sitting in the front passenger seat, and um, I was wearing my seatbelt in a way that was only, ha only covering me over my waist, wasn't covering me diagonally over my chest. And I was actually sleeping in the car, and it was a rainy night, and because of the rain, there was a car from the lane that was next to me that swerved around 180 degrees and um, hit the car that I was in head on. And then because it was a rainy night, and we had stopped, and it was hard for cars to stop in back of us, there was a car that hit me from the back. All this happened while I was asleep, although I woke up, but then immediately lost consciousness, and was taken to a hospital, and kind of in and out of consciousness. Um, and the whole time the doctors were telling me, and I said, just put me out of this pain, I can't take this pain, and the doctor said, well, could you just describe where it hurts? And I said, I don't know, somewhere in my abdominal area, but I don't know, and then kind of falling out of consciousness again. And they couldn't, the doctors couldn't detect uh, via x-ray what was going on. So they had to do an exploratory surgery, which is a, a much wider incision than a more specified surgery to see what was happening. And they saw that, in fact, my large intestine, my colon had ruptured because of the seatbelt, so just heads up, bad idea to only wear the lower part of the seatbelt. Uh, the force just is, brings your, the, your upper, upper body forward on the seatbelt into your, right into that area of the lower abdomen and caused a rupture, which then in turn called the, caused internal bleeding and that was what was causing the pain. And they were able to suture it up. But, uh, and, and then began my road to recovery, which took a few months, the incision, etc. but thank God I recovered. Well, what happened after that, unbeknownst to me, was immense amounts of scar tissue started to grow on my colon. And that only became apparent to me once I started to have children, once I was trying to have children, and trying for about four years to conceive a child, unsuccessfully. And kind of in the back of my mind, I thought it was related to the car accident, but I didn't have any tangible proof. Um, I did a number of tests where they send a liquid dye through my fallopian tubes and they came out, they, they came out positive successfully. 
So I didn't know exactly what it was, tried a lot of different testing fertility treatments, but everything just didn't, nothing panned out. And then I had a, 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 laparos, a laparoposcope, laparoposcope, where they send uh, a little microscope in through, they make three incisions, one in your belly button, two others down your abdomen, and they send a little microscope that has a camera, and they can see exactly what's going on. And there they were able to see huge scar tissue that had attached themselves to my fallopian tubes. So even though the dye had come out and they weren't entirely closed, but the fibria, the fingers at the end of the fallopian tubes were very entangled in the scar tissue, preventing it from doing its, what it's best at doing, which is catching the, um, the egg that when you ovulate, catching the egg to be able to fertilize it which mainly fertilization mainly happens, happens in the fallopian tube, so it wasn't happening. And they did cut away the scar tissue adhesion, but the problem with cutting away the scar tissue adhesion is that more scar tissue grows back. So the more you cut, the more the body tries to heal itself, builds up more scar tissue, and it becomes kind of a never-ending cycle. And they cut away the scar tissue and they said, okay, now, you know, see what happens. May work, may not work. And again, I tried uh, using, um, using um, hormones to allow me to ovulate in a more exaggerated way to increase the chances of falling pregnant, but it didn't help. And at that point, I decided to go in a way to, to do alternative therapy that would be able to circumvent my fallopian tubes. Thank God, modern medicine provides us with different um, alter, uh, alternative ways of procreation. And I was able to try that venue. But even that, which seemingly I would have been a perfect candidate, um, w wasn't successful. And it's about, $10,000 a pop, you know, trying to go through the whole procedure. And when it doesn't work, it's like, that's it. But try it again and again. At that point, I was really at a very low time in my life and frustrated. And I was reading a letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he was writing about how people are put a lot of emphasis on medicine without realizing that it's really God working through the channel or the vehicle of medicine. And the power of prayer, the Rebbe was talking about prayer and talking about how there's nobody that prays like a person who prays in desperation. As much as you're going to try to put it on, you just can't get there. When you really, really want something, your prayer is going to take on that added dimension. And in a sense, it's an opportunity because it's only when you really are desperate for something that you have easier access to a very intense prayer. And I took it very personally and I said, you know, I'm, I'm putting so much hope in medicine. And I'm kind of thinking, God, don't worry, I got it covered. It's going to be okay because there's going to be a medical answer for me. But it doesn't work that way. When God says yes, it's yes. When God says no, it's no. And it doesn't matter how much medical intervention you try. And I decided I wanted to focus on prayer and I wanted to go to Israel. At that time, my husband couldn't come with me. So I went myself. And I went for a very short trip. But it was focused on prayer at different auspicious places. So I went to the Kotel and Maratha Machpelah, um, where Abraham, Adam, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried and their spouses. And I went to Hebron. I'm sorry, that is in Hebron. Maratha Machpelah is in Hebron. I went to the holy city of Tzfat, uh, Tiberia, Tiberias, and other places to pray. And kind of just every day, I would go to one or two places, and I had somebody driving me. And I, would, and I would just focus on prayer. When I got back, uh, I basically fell pregnant right away. Um, also, not with medical treatments and uh, 
through this intervention that had not worked many times in the past, but finally it had worked. And about nine and a half months later, um, after I returned from Israel, I had twin girls. So that was very miraculous for me. I felt like it was really a, a, a fusion of using medicine as a vehicle for God's blessings, where I saw that this medicine worked because of my prayers. It wasn't a miracle in the sense of, oh my gosh, a spontaneous pregnancy after so many... No, it didn't involve medicine, although afterwards I did have that miracle, thank God, of having a spontaneous pregnancy. But um, for this time, it, uh, it was kind of understanding that God works through a clea, a vessel, and you could see God's hand through the vessel. Um, and I knew I was going to have twins because through this fertility treatment, I knew there was a chance of me having twins, and I immediately had a sonogram when I fell pregnant, and I knew I was going to have twins, and that was also exciting. And in my mind, I felt I was 28 at the time, um, maybe 27, turning 28, and I felt like having twins was like a compensation. So God was saying, yes, took you a long time, so it was hard, but now you're going to like, bang, have two kids right away. And that was exciting for me. Um, it was a Friday morning when I delivered the twins. And the first twin I delivered naturally. And the second twin was, her heart rate was dropping as I tried to deliver her. And the doctors decided that they wanted to do a cesarean. So they immediately opened me up and uh, took the baby out via surgery. And it wasn't the fact that her heart rate had, had, was dropping during labor uh, ended up being problematic. They saw that she did very poorly on the testing and they took her immediately to the neonatal intensive care unit, the NICU. So I just had, uh, had, had undergone a natural birth and then a cesarean and then the one child was taken to the uh, NICU and I was kind of like out of it, sleeping, tired, but at the same time, you know, I want to know what's going on and I was dozing off for an hour or so and then I woke up and I told my husband what's going on with the other, you know, with that one twin and uh, with, with that one, with the one, with our daughter, could you go check? And he went to the NICU to check to see what was going on and I was like also kind of in and out of a daze. And then they transferred me to, to my own room and he came back. And when he came back, he looked very serious and he said to me, they told me, the nurses told me that our daughter has a genetic disorder. I don't know what that means. At that time, the only genetic disorder that I knew of was Down syndrome. Um, of course, there are many, many genetic disorders, but I just was uneducated and unaware. And I was, I said, well, what does that mean? What kind of disabilities will she have because of that? Will she be able to recover? Will she be able to live a normal life? And he said, I don't know. So I picked up the phone and I called the NICU and I asked to speak to her nurse and I said, you know, tell me what's going on. My husband told me she has a genetic disorder or may have a genetic disorder. Tell me everything that's going on. And she said, look, I, I don't know. I can't tell you. You're going to have to speak to the doctor. I'll tell the doctor to come and see you. And already I'm panicking and I'm all, you know, I, I, I'm all worked up. Well, about an hour later, the doctor does come to see us. My husband and I were in, we were in the room and he says to me, we were examining your daughter and she has a number of markers that are associated with a genetic disorder called trisomy 18, which is a mutation of the 18th chromosome, Down syndrome is the 13th chromosome, uh, three strands, an unequal distribution, unequal division of the 18th chromosome. And the markers are things that maybe somebody else would think would be just normal, like for example, the second toe being longer than the front toe. Maybe some people have that, but it happens to be associated with this chromosomal disorder. Uh, hands that are clenched, which you actually see people that have neurological conditions, 
their hands are clenched. And of course, other markers in her heart and her lungs, um, which are not dangerous in and of themselves yet, but are associated with this chromosomal disorder. She was also small, much smaller than the other twin, about almost, almost half the size. So this was like kind of hitting me like a bag of bricks. I just was overwhelmed by this. And he said to me, but today's Friday. We'll send the DNA sample over to the labs, and we'll get the results back on Tuesday. We'll be able to tell you whether she does or she doesn't have this chromosomal disorder. So I looked at him. I couldn't even sit up because it was only hours after the sur surgery. So I was kind of just propped up in the bed. And I said to him, let me ask you a question, doctor. Have you ever seen a child with all of these markers for trisomy 18 that turned out not to have that disorder? Well, he kind of looked down, didn't look me in the eye, and he said, not in recent history. So I knew. I didn't have to wait for the test to come back. And he left the room. And I just started to sob and sob, and my husband was sobbing, and, oh, I'm sorry. So I asked him, so what does this mean, trisomy 18? So he said to me, well, in 90% of the cases, the baby will not live past 12 months. And in 50% of the cases, the baby will not live more than three months, because the heart and the brain and the lungs are not able to function um, properly and then he left so um, here I was a mom for the first time and so excited to be a mother and now I was told that one of the child one of the babies wasn't going to survive or wasn't going to survive long term and we were just overwhelmed with pain and and then I, I looked at my husband and I said, okay, we, we need to get control here. We need to find a perspective that's going to hold us through and not just become a wreck. Now, I teach in high school. I've been a high school teacher for almost 15 years. I started when I was 19 and I was just like a year older than the kids. And... Uh, I always say that the best thing about being a high school teacher, or any teacher for that matter, is that I get to learn. I get to learn on the job. Sometimes I'm only a step ahead of my students, trying to put on a good show, but uh, sometimes I'm just, you know, just been in the middle of researching a topic and then I'm conveying it. I don't even know that much more than I'm conveying. But I get to learn. It's a, it's, a, it's a profession where I'm not just, you know, doing the same skills that I've done over and over. I'm always learning new things. Even if I'm teaching the same subject, I'm always uncovering some more about that subject. And not only to learn, but to glean the lessons that I'm trying to convey from uh, the matter that I'm teaching. Especially teaching Judaic subjects, uh, Hasidut, uh, Jewish history. They're so much, it's so impactful, and often I walk away saying, I don't know if I impacted anybody here, but I'm thinking about it. It's, it's a frame of reference for my life. And one of the things that I had been teaching that year was the t topic in the Torah of Akedat Yitzchak, the sacrifice, the binding of Isaac, when Abraham is given the commandment to bind Isaac on the altar. And if you look to your source sheet, I'd like to, I'd like, we'll do a little high school lesson here. This is the way that I would do it if I was teaching in high school. I would say, okay, girls, open up your chumash. Um, on page two, you have this first pasuk, the first verse of the story, which is kind of an introduction. It's not telling us anything uh, radical about the story, but it says, Vayihi achar hadarim ha'ela. And it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham, Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. So we don't know anything about the conversation. It's just like, hi, hi. What's going to happen next? Well, that is in the next verse. 
In a sense, this whole pasuk, this whole verse is unnecessary because God is not saying anything and it was after these things, or after what things, and why do I care that obviously it was after something. And God tested Abraham, well, okay, he'll test him. Let's see what's he, what he's going to say. Why do I need to know that God tested Abraham before he even tested him? And in fact, this is considered to be Abraham's tenth test. And in none of the, some of them are, some of the previous nine tests are recorded explicitly in the Torah. Some of them are not, they're in the Medrash. But in any of the cases that are mentioned in the Torah, let's say, for example, God said to Abraham, leave your birthplace, your homeland, your father's house, and go to the place that I will show you. It does not say God tested Abraham and said, leave your birthplace. It just says, God said to Abraham, So why now? This is the only time in God's dialogue with Abraham. In fact, it's the only time in the Torah that we have this introductory remark, and it was that God tested Abraham. And actually, this is the first time in the Torah that we have this word, nisa, which means to test. And therefore, whenever you have something for the first time in the Torah, it's always setting the precedent for every other time this will come up in the Torah and in our lives. So all the commentaries jump on this verse and say, why do you need this? Now, at the very basic level, you could say that the reason that this was given, was called a test, Nisa, is because it didn't actually come through. God didn't really need Abraham to do it. Whereas when he said, leave your father's place, it's not like Abraham packed his bag and got ready to go, and then God said, oh, just joking, Abraham, you could stay right here. I just wanted to see if you would do it. Every other test, he had to do it. Whereas in this case, it was just a test. He was just testing him. So that's one reason, perhaps, that it says God tested Abraham, giving you the heads up, guys, before you get all angry at God and say, no, how could... He's just testing him. We know that. God knows that. The only one who doesn't know that is Abraham. So um, maybe that's what a test means. But there's a lot that's implicit in this word test. And the first thing I want to look at is Nachmanides, the Ramban. Nachmanides was a 12th century Spanish scholar and commentary, Kabbalist. He was actually born in 1195, so also mainly lived in the 13th century. And he writes, uh, he says that, he, why does God test a person? That's the way he's going to go with this. Why? Why is God doing this? Why does God telling Abraham to do something so difficult, so not constructive, not for him, not for Isaac? And um, he starts off as follows. And I'm going to read this on page two on the bottom. And God tested, tried Abraham. The matter to test, to trial, in my opinion, is as follows. Since a man's deeds are at his absolutely free command to perform them or not to perform them at his will on the part of one who is, who is, who is tested, it is called a trial. Okay, I'm sorry. So with that, on the part of the one who is tested, uh, the testee, it's called a test. But on the part of uh, and the part on the part of the one blessed be he who tests the person. I'm just saying the word test instead of tries because to me it makes more sense. It is a command that the one being tested should bring forth the matter from potential into actuality. So from God's perspective, from the tester's perspective, it's not a test. It's it's uh, exercise in bringing something from potential into actual. Why would God want to do that? So that he may be rewarded for a good deed and not for a good thought alone. So God says, I know you have so much potential and I want, you, I want to elicit that potential and therefore I'm testing you. So from your perspective, you say, oh my gosh, this is not fair. This is impossible. Why would God do this to me? Why would God ask this of me? And God is saying, Okay, I want to see. I want to see you bring out what I know you have. Almost like you could say with a child that's learning to walk, where the parent will step back.
child in their mind would say, Mom, you're there to protect me and help me walk. Why are you pulling back? I may fall. And the mother is thinking, no, no, I know you could walk. It's just that I carry you around 24-7. That's what I do to my baby. Um, and you're always on my hip. And that's why I need to go to the chiropractor all the time because, oh, and I need you to learn how to walk. So I'm going to put you down and stand you up, prop you up. And yes, maybe you're going to fall. But eventually, I know you have it in you. I know you could walk. So according to Nachmanides, this is why God tests a person. And then he goes on to say um, that God only tests people that he knows could pass that test. And the very last line, the bottom of page two, thus all trials in the Torah are for the good of the one who is being tested. So it is for our good. As opposed to saying that God is saying, hmm, let me set you up for failure. Let me see, can you pass? Or are you going to kind of fall by the sidelines? Or maybe you could say God is punishing a person and saying, you know, I don't want to associate with you. I'm not going to protect you anymore. I'm not going to look out to, to, for what's in your best interest. I'm going to leave you alone and vulnerable. And that's why I'm experiencing this, this uh, misfortune. The Ramban is saying straight out, no. Whenever God tests a person, it's for their benefit to bring out from the potential into the actual. Okay, so now remember all of this is what I had preached to my students that year, uh, not knowing that this was gonna be very applicable to me. Another thing that I do with my students, okay, and if you can imagine I have a blackboard and I put on the, on the blackboard the word nisayon, which means test, first time in the Torah, it comes up when it talks about uh, the binding of Isaac. Okay, and then I say every Hebrew word is not a symbol for the meaning of that word, but is the creative energy empowering that word. So when I say computer, computer itself, that word computer is not intrinsically connected to what we see right there, the microchip, all the functions of a computer. It could have been called a, a commuter, let's say, and it would be the same thing. It would be referring to the same thing. Whereas in, so it's a symbol, but in Hebrew, the word, uh, the word is very much connected to the being. Uh, in fact, when God created the world, he created it through speech. So when he said, Yehi or, the word or, olive of resh, is the creative energy that he used to create light. And there's 24, um, venues or streams of, of creative energy and the combination of all those venues creates the myriads of different objects and experiences and emotions that we have in the universe. So that means that the word is very much connected and that's by the way why Adam was able to name all the animals because according to Kabbalah he was able to kind of just see right through them and say wow uh, an ox I see the letters that were used to create it sure and, and that, that'll shoot for all the animals. So whenever you see two words that have the same, that mean something different, but are the same word is used to refer to two different things. So in a, a regular language like English, the word I can, can meaning heavy ability, and the word can, like a soda can, like a cup that, you know, that has a, it has a sealed top, they are not connected to each other unless you say, I can open the soda can. But they really are not connected to each other. But in Hebrew, whenever there's one word that has two different meanings, those two different things must be connected to each other because the same energetic force is creating both of them. So we have this word nisayon, which means test. And there's two other words that uh, share that same etymological root, the nun and the samak, that means something else. So one of them is a common word, which is the word nace or miracle. Here I put uh, on page three, the very top, nes gadol hayasham, which is the acronym on the dreidel, uh, or in Hebrew you would say, in Israel you would say po, nes gadol hayapo. But the word nace, the nun, means miracle, or people that are, you know, people that speak Hebrew English or Yiddish English, they'll say, oh, such a great nace happened to me today. Such a great miracle happened to me today. 
and go on to say what it was. So nes means miracle. So here you have this word nun samach, which means test, and also means miracle. And there's also another word that stems from these root letters nin samach, and that is the word banner. And that is if you we say um, uh, a few times in the prayer we say it. We say in vuhuni si umanosli. What is that in Adonolam? Okay. So he is my uh, he is my banner and my refuge. Then we say it again in the Amidah. We say visa nes lekabets galuyosenu. God will lift up a banner and in gather the exiled people and gather in the exiled people. So and many other and then in many other places the word nes means banner. So you have test miracle banner share the same root letters and mean completely different things, but they must be connected. And the Medrash talks about this at length. So I'm sure you could, we could, you know, if this was an interactive class, you guys could come up with a lot of connections. But ultimately, and maybe you already have, but ultimately let's talk about test and miracle. So based on what the Ramban Nachmanides is saying, bringing a test is there from God's perspective to bring out our potential into actualization. So it's bringing out the miraculous powers that I didn't know I had into uh, practical expression. So there's me, the normal me, and in normal situations, no, I cannot deal with this. There's no way that I could handle something like this. But then there is the miraculous me, the things that I never thought I could do, and I really couldn't do them, and I did them. And this is true biologically as well. So you have the famous example, which I actually looked online yesterday, and it, it, it is a true phenomenon that a mother has been able to lift a car to pull out a child that was kind of run over, or in another case, there was another case where somebody was changing a tire and uh, the, what's that called, that props up a car? Jack, okay, the jack kind of dislodged and the car fell onto the person or the child, and a mother, or in some cases two mothers, but still were able to lift up the car a few inches to move it. And this would be something that would be impossible for them to try under a normal circumstance. So you could say it's a rush of adrenaline, um, fight or flight, that kind of instinctive power comes, but it's, it's something that seems unhuman. It's a superhuman feat. Sometimes you're very much under pressure and you're able to stay up all night and then again work the next day. In normal circumstances, you would be just flat out tired even if you only got three hours of sleep, but you're so excited or you're so motivated to do something, you have this adrenaline rush and you do something that you didn't think would be possible. Well, this is what happened. This only happens in a very particular situation, usually uh, a negative situation, where something is brought out a latent power that is miraculous. It's miraculous to me because it transcends my nature, the confines of who I am. So in that way, it makes a lot of sense that a test, when a person is tested, what's expected of them or their calling at that time is to be, is to transcend their nature. Because naturally, I would not, I, I don't want this and I can't do this. But if God is asking me to do it, then that means that he believes that I have it in me to do it. So in general, we don't ask God to test us. We say every day in the prayers, God, don't test me. And that's good. We should say that. But once God does test us, then that means that I have it in me to accomplish. So there's test and miracle. And again, when things happen to us that are disappointing, and it could be even something very mundane, not terribly disappointing, but frustrating, and of course, when something is, is very, very frustrating or painful, one of, the most, one of the gut reactions is, why me? Why did this happen to me? Why, God, why are you picking on me? So why me could be asked in two different ways. Why me? Why am I the unlucky one? Or why me? I really want to know, why me? Why is God choosing for me to experience this? 
there must be something about me and about my soul potential that's connected to this challenge. And if I could rise to the occasion, which sometimes just means keeping a happy frame uh, of mind or keeping my serenity or keeping the faith, if I can rise to that occasion, then I'll see a new part of me. So why me? Because it's, it's in me. It's there. And God wants to pull it out. Okay, so why a banner? So a banner then is taking it to the next level that you then become an example for other people. So the way I react is going to make an impact on my environment. Yeah, everybody sees the way you react in the status quo situation and they say, very nice, she's doing a great job, wonderful person. But what about when things are tough? That's when you're making the loudest statement about who you are at your very core. And I think we all know this to be true because we all look to other people and say, wow, she's a happy person even though she has a child with a disability and she doesn't seem to be you know, burdened every single day of her life. She finds, if she could do that, then I shouldn't complain about the fact that I need to redo my bathroom desperately or um, my boss is unappreciative of me or you know, he's sitting in jail and he still believes that God's going to help him. Wow, that makes such a loud statement. That's an inspiration. So you become a banner, a representation for other people that are in your sphere of influence and maybe even after. Sometimes people have stories, you know, my grandfather in Russia, he sat in jail for spreading, uh, for spreading Judaism. Well, look what an impact that person made for sitting, that sitting in jail. That was horrible. But their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are gleaning from that experience. More so than if they were sitting in the Beth Midrash and learning Torah. So going back to myself, sitting in the hospital and trying to process what the doctor had told me, I said to myself, okay, so now let's be real. This is what you teach. Now this is, has to be who you are. If this is real to you, then this is the time that this will show. It's not random, it's not a mistake, this is what God wants me to experience. And God shows us as, their, as, as this girl's parents. We ended up naming her Chayamushka after the Rebbe's wife uh, on Shabbat, which was the next day. So that's the first frame of reference that this is not a mistake. Why me is why me, why us? And I told the story, I have my whole mother a story about the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov was the founder of the Hasidic Revolution, the Hasidic Movement, uh, born in 1698 in Poland. And uh, the story goes as follows. There was a, just a couple followers of the Baal Shem Tov that had come to the Baal Shem Tov um, and asked him for a blessing for children because they were childless. And the Balshemto never gave them that blessing, you know? Never directly gave But they were persistent, and year after year, they would come to visit the Balshemto and ask him for the blessing for, for a child, and he, he didn't give them the blessing. And one year, finally, he gave them a blessing that you will have a baby boy a blessing of the baby boy, I don't know if he gave him a time frame, maybe a year, whatever it was, and lo and behold, after many years of infertility, she, the wife, fell pregnant and had a baby boy. And this child was a child prodigy. Brilliant, beautiful, and their parents were, his parents were ecstatic. But at three years old, the child fell ill and died. And the mother and father were just devastated. And they were angry at the Balshemto. Why bless us if the child is going to die? It's like better not to know this child than to know and love a child and then lose them. And so they went back to the Balshemto to express their, their pain and disappointment and complaint. 
And the Baal Shem to listen compassionately to this poor Jewish mother crying, sobbing, father devastated. And the Baal Shem told them a story. The Baal Shem said that there was once a nobleman, prince perhaps, that had a tutor, a Jewish tutor. His father, the king, had hired a tutor for him, and the best tutor around was a Jew, and even though the king was not so fond of the Jews, but he wanted this tutor because he was so brilliant, such a good teacher, and the tutor had come on condition that he could maintain his Jewish identity um, and pray every day. But he didn't know, he didn't want to do it out of the open because there was an anti-Semitic environment, so he made a condition with the father that for one hour a day, he needed to be secluded in a room. And that was, he was granted that. And every day he would go and dive and then come out and teach. I guess in those days everybody kind of covered their, their head and a lot of people had beards, so he was able to blend in without exposing the fact that he was a Jew. Well, one day, this prince, who was very smart, curious little boy, said to his tutor, what do you do for that hour when you put yourself in the room every day? And um, he said, oh, nothing. It's just, you know, my time to meditate. And he said, oh, but I want to know. You have everything you teach me is so brilliant and profound. I want to know everything that you do, including what you do in that one hour. And it's so intriguing because, you know, you don't let me know. You don't let anybody know. And he says, um, okay, I'll, I'll show you, but you can't tell anybody, discuss it with anybody. It's just, it's not something that can be in the open. He said, okay. And he let the boy stay there while he dabbled. Put on his towels and still on the dabbled. And he was kind of immersed in a very intense focus on God and meditation. And the prince was just enamored. He couldn't believe that a person could reach such a state of consciousness where the focus is on the spiritual. And uh, he wanted more and more. And he wanted to always stay with him. More about how you do this and what it is and who's the God that you're praying to. Algebra and geography, we'll learn that afterwards, but I want to know about this. And uh, he started to teach him about God and about Judaism, and the boy really took to it. And he said, I want to be a Jew. And the tutor told him, You don't need to be a Jew. Really, God doesn't want everybody to be a Jew. Everybody, Jew and Gentile, can maximize their souls mission by, by being a good and moral ethical human being within their own uh, Jew or Gentile, but he really wanted to be a Jew. And uh, he couldn't do it. Uh, and he couldn't tell his father because his father would never allow for such a thing. And he eventually planned an escape where he went out with an entourage to go hunting and then he told the entourage to stay by, to stay while he goes swimming in the lake and he left his clothes and swam to the other end of the lake and I guess he had prepared it all before uh, where he was able to sneak out to a different town and uh, find the Jewish community there and convert it to Judaism and spend the rest of his life learning Torah and becoming a very great Jew, a very accomplished person. After 120 years, this, this boy who's now a grown man dies, passes away, and comes to the heavenly tribunal, and they're looking at the sacrifices that he made to become a Jew, leaving everything, a life of wealth and fame and indulgence and honor, just to cleave to God, just to uh, live a life that he felt was true. And they said, you know, straight to, straight to the garden, straight to God, and straight to heaven. And uh, then the prosecuting angel came and said, wait, but what about his childhood? You know, he was tainted, and it's not his fault, but the fact is, he drank from non-Jewish milk. His mother's milk was, uh, you know, his, was processed, digested, it was a digestion of non-kosher food. And even though it wasn't his choice, but still that milk became uh, the very fiber of his being. So he's not like 100% pure. Yes, it's not his fault, but at the same time, it's not a perfected being. And what should they do? 
So what they decided to do was to send this child back to Earth in order to drink milk from a Jewish mother. And then the Baal Shem Tov turned to that couple and said, you wanted a child, you were destined to have children, but you had a very, very holy child. And they understood that what they were granted was a reincarnation of this, of this uh, prince that had become this tzaddik, this very righteous man. So I heard that story, I was young, we had a book, you know, about the story, and I, and I said, well, that's us. That must be us. Because a child that's not going to grow up to have a Yetzir Hara is only good, and their, their sole mission must be very short, small, and if their sole mission is small, that means in a previous life, they have very little work to be done to have them complete. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's a response, it's a zuchut, it's a merit, it's something that we need to be proud of, that we were given a child that has a short life, that's going to have a short life. So this is what I said. Now, again, it's easy to say it right now. This is already five years ago, five and a half years ago. Actually, next week it'll be six years. So it's a very uh, timely. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you kind of float between theory and real, tangible emotion. But still, I still, whatever pain I felt in my heart, and I surely felt tremendous tragedy in my heart, pain and disappointment, I set a certain framework through which I was going to process this situation. That A, we were chosen, this is not random, it is for our best interest, it will create a certain miraculous dimension to who we are, and lastly, this is also going to impact other people. It's not just about us, but it's about how other people see how we react to this situation, and that could have a huge impact on them. The next three months, three and a half months, were very, very hectic. I really wanted to bring Chayamushka home to my house, but she needed to be stabilized and breathing, and uh, that took a while to wean her off of oxygen, to be dependent on oxygen, and uh, of course, tremendous testing, but I try to go to the hospital every day and be with her. And always remind myself that this little baby is a holy child. And she was given to me. And there's a reason that she was given to me. We also try to include as many people as possible in this journey. So we would say, you know, this is our daughter. Not, you could talk about it. You know, we could talk about it. Because this is, has to do with you also, not just with me. Uh, by the way, even right here, right now, she is permeating this world because you're listening to me talk about her. So just to give you an idea, or just to remind myself, life is not valued by the amount of years that we live. It's the imprint that we make on the universe. So if you can make an imprint in three months, great. Um, if you could rock the world from your crib, then that's, that's a very powerful thing. So we encourage people, what can you do to make her life meaningful? How can you show us that she has affected you? Because we got to do, you know, 70, 80 years in three months here. we got to pack it in, so help us. And people were doing amazing things. They were saying, okay, we're going to you know, put on studio, put on the celebrities. We're going to light Shabbat candles. And we got everyone in the hospital and our friends, and we made a website uh, really trying to push lights, that her life has to be about spreading lights. And people that were, people, people, I feel, you know, maybe you could say, well, they felt bad for us, poor couple, what can we do to help? At least this will make them feel better. That's one way of looking at it. But I also feel that people were touched by her in a, um, in a super conscious way. That they somehow felt that this is a very outer worldly experience and 
they needed to do something also otherworldly, also spiritual, to be a part of it, to be a part of her life and to be a part of our life at the time. So at that time, the doctors in the hospital were, I felt like they were very critical. And they were always telling me, you know, don't do this surgery, don't do that, don't try to prolong her life, which I understand. And, you know, we were always there and very attentive and trying to make sure that she had the best care. And, um, and by the way, this is not a simple thing about, you know, whether you should be, uh, whether you, you don't, you definitely don't need to have a, a DNR or do not resuscitate for a child that has a terminal illness. Um, in other words, you, you can't pull a plug, you can't take away the feeding tube, but you don't need to intubate. Um, but nonetheless, aside for the practical choices that we were making, should we prolong her life? Should we let her pass away with ease when her body was breaking down? I just felt like there was a certain disrespect that she was getting. And that was very, very painful for me. Because here I was trying to tell myself and everybody else that her life is rich with meaning. And she's a soul that's untainted. And her body, um, you know, and already speaks about how Moshe, Moses had a stutter because his words were so powerful and his mouth wasn't able to express them. Like, you know what you want to say that you're so excited and you're like, you don't have a word, you can't speak. So, um, so her body was, was, in a sense, broken because her soul was so luminescent. And her body couldn't keep up with that. And then the doctor was giving me the other message. So I had this one doctor, she said to me, you know, Rachel, you know that she's going to die. So I said, we're all going to die. I didn't tell her that, you know, we're, I just went to Rabbi Chris in the last session. I didn't tell her that actually we're all going to have everlasting life because she has this coming. But, you know, I just said we're all going to die. Like, okay, we're all going to die. So what? So I'm going to die later than her? That's, that's why I shouldn't be so focused on her? So I'm just like, you know, no, but we're all going to be like, soon. She's going to die soon. Thanks for shoving it in my face, you know. Like, do you think that I don't know? I know. But I still really want to savor every moment of her life. She's not like a disposable baby, like, oh, she's not good enough. She's not healthy. No. And it's not just because she's my child. And, um, and, that was like, and then I ultimately did bring her home and, um, and, and then she went back to the hospital for the last week of her life. Um, and, and she passed away in my arms. I was holding her, and she just breathed her last breath. Um, and, you know, at one point, we were constantly resuscitating her, resuscitating her, and then we had to make a choice. She's, she's given up, and it's not fair to constantly resuscitate her, so we're not going to resuscitate her. Next time she shuts down and stops breathing, we're just going to let her go. And that's what we did, and I was holding her, and uh, just to see a child go from being alive and then their soul just leaving their body to becoming still and a body without a soul was uh, a, uh, a very painful but powerful experience. And what I realized was that life is so precious and valuable. And it's not only about what is going to happen with that life, but it's about every single minute of life. So here I had two children. One child that was healthy and cute, and I was thinking, oh, I can't wait until she's crawling, and I can put bows in her hair, and then she has the bat mitzvah, the wedding, and the grandchildren, and, you know? You look at this little baby, and you have so much expectation, and then you have another child. They're not going to be cute, I mean, in their own way, but they're not, you're not going to dress them up, and you're not going to take them to their vomit stuff. But their life is equally valuable because it's not about what I what I can take away. It's not about what's measurable, what's measurably successful. It's about every single breath that God gives us and the impact that we make on the world. And I feel like that was my miracle. 
the ability to see life at least a little bit more as the journey of the soul. Because if I believed it with Hayamushka, and I had to believe it, because my other choice was to look at it like that doctor who said, she's going to die. So I had to believe that her life is valuable, and I was chosen to be her mother, and she is just a soul that has a body as a vehicle, then I had to believe that about my other daughter and about my other children as well. And that was a perspective that was very theoretical beforehand and not as practical. And for me, my miracle, the breaking of nature, expanding of my nature, my consciousness, was many things, but one of them, that. Um, talking about emotional healing. I had to differentiate between depression and pain, or pain and suffering. So to say don't feel pain, that's cruel and that's not what God wants. God gave us time of mourning. But depression, I felt, comes from a sense of randomness, abandonment, God doesn't care about me. Suffering. And that, I was trying to tell myself, don't go there. Now, it's easier said than done. I remember a time that I came back from the hospital, driving home, I called my husband from the car and I said, you know, I hate this. I am so angry. Why can't she be healthy? Why can't she just grow up? And my husband said to me, but Rachel, do you know how many people are doing mitzvot in her honor? I mean, how many people make that kind of impact in a whole lifetime? Do you know? And I said, I don't care. I don't care about this vote. I don't care about goodness. I don't care about impact on the universe. I want a healthy daughter. Five minutes? Okay. Um, and he was telling me, he was just, he was just trying to comfort me and say, no, it's, uh, it's, there are meetings in her life and we don't understand it, but this, then the next day, I was like kind of feeling better, and he went to the hospital, so he says, calls me and says, well, could you remind me about what I told you yesterday? Could you just say that back to me? So the depression coming from a sense of randomness, that's the template, I believe, for emotional healing, at least for me, that my springboard was I was meant to experience this, and this experience is intrinsically connected to my soul's journey and my soul's potential. Now, the soul has an infinite power source because it is a power of God. And therefore, the soul that experiences pain can always heal. You see people that have undergone tremendous tragedies, the Holocaust, and they're able to heal. They're able to find happiness in life. Because the soul is not like, you know, uh, the body, which when it's broken many times cannot heal or uh, continues to atrophy or become worse, but the soul replenishes because it draws from God, from an infinite source, and therefore there is nothing that the soul cannot heal from. Not to say that we don't have scars, going back to that scar tissue, but those scars, even they're painful, and even if I always cry when I think about that, those scars also cultivate empathy, humility, and healthy vulnerability in our life. So there's really perhaps two ways that a person could and should self-actualize. One is within the context of our nature, where we work on ourselves, hone our talents, try and be the best person that we could intellectually, emotionally, physically, whatever it is. And that's something that's always encouraged in uh, psychology today, self-actualization, the top um, level that a person can reach. But self-actualization can also lead to a lot of arrogance and superiority, feelings of superiority. Sometimes God calls upon us to self-actualize in a way that we can't do ourselves. And largely, this happens through disappointment, pain, frustration, sometimes tragedy, 
And at that time, we interface with a reality that doesn't make sense to me at all. In fact, it's just darn uncomfortable and uh, seems godless. So my reality, what I think is the parameter of good and bad, interfaces with God's. And now, I'm, my ego needs to let go. All of the scripts that I wrote for my life, my life should look like this, this is the way a meaningful life should look, I need to let go of that. But in turn, what I gain is the soul power that was yet latent, that forces me to draw it out, becoming more a miraculous being. So there's a lot more to say, but we don't have time. And um, I wish everybody a wonderful rest of the day and only good and positive, happy experiences that we should grow from from now on.